Well, thank you again for joining me here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. I'm glad you joined me today as I pick up where I left off in responding to the episode of the Thinking Atheist radio show on counter-apologetics. I have to admit that in the last episode, and I might do it a couple times in this one, I sometimes attributed a comment made by Aaron Ra to Matt Dillahunty. Uh, my bad. To be honest, to us Californians, all Southerners sound really alike. I do apologize, and I'll try to be more accurate in this episode, but sometimes when they just jump in and answer kind of over each other, they sound really similar, as does the host, I might add. Now, Tracy, I had no picking, problem picking out of the crowd. So let's just jump right in with, uh, into the show uh, with this clip from the unthinking, I mean, the thinking atheist radio show. Let's tie this into the cosmological argument. It's essentially a first cause argument, right? Everything that happens, everything we see, everything we sense had a cause and therefore God. Would that be an accurate way to sum up the cosmological argument or no? Uh, I think so. <laughs> what? I mean, this is just ridiculous. If they think that that is a good summary of the cosmological argument, then they're just again showing their total blind bias and inability to even charitably understand their opponents. And look, when I say charitably understand, I'm not saying that they should go easy on what they disagree with. But when scholars and academics uh, talk about charitable understanding, they mean that before you criticize a position, you have to understand the position and the terms and the concepts as they're used and believed by the person who endorses those positions. I mean, I don't think I go very easy on a lot of what passes for quote-unquote skepticism these days, but at least I try to understand the actual arguments and concepts as they're believed by its proponents. I mean, otherwise it's just a straw man. Now, I get a lot of flack for saying that guys like Ditchkins and Harris and Krauss and Dillahunty and McAfee and the unthinking atheists here are in fact atheistic fundamentalists. Now, I've explained this many times in the past, but let me just really briefly explain what I mean here. Fundamentalism is kind of a loosey-goosey term and can be used in a number of different ways. We can mean it as a description of the early 20th century Protestant movement that was a reaction to the modernistic and liberal tendencies and sought to, be, uh, to, to go back to the fundamentals. This is where the term actually derives from. It, it just meant someone who holds to the fundamental beliefs of an ideology. It was historically uh, used to describe religious fundamentalism, and originally it wasn't even a pejorative term. It was self-professed by those who thought that the fundamentals of Christianity were, well, fundamental. Now, as time went on, fundamentalism started to become a real F-word when it took on sociological flavors such as a rigid and strict adherence to a set of principles of conduct. Here we start getting images of dogmatic Southern Baptists who say no creed but Christ, but are taught the ethical creed, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. We can think of Bob Jones University, where men and women sit at separate tables, use separate elevators, and have to get signed permission slips to leave campus. Now, fundamentalism has an even broader usage, and it is that usage that myself and others use when we talk about the atheistic or anti-theistic fundamentalists. Not only are Ditchkins and co. rabidly dogmatic to the fundamentals of philosophical naturalism, materialism, secular humanism, and a kind of narrow reductionistic scientism, which are all in and of themselves deeply problematic, 
but they all exhibit the inability to even begin to understand their opponents. I mean, they don't even try. I can't tell you how many times I've asked these, these kinds of fundamentalists what scholars they've read from across the aisle, and they just recoil in horror as if I asked what scholars they've read who accept flat earthism or Holocaust mythicism. They can't imagine anyone even remotely rational holding to a belief, and those who do are either not legitimate scholars or inconsistent scholars. That is, they may, uh, they may be good at, say, chemistry, but if they only would apply the same rigors to their religious beliefs, they would abandon them forthwith. I probably use this quote more than any other by him, but Terry Eagleton wrote in his review of Dawkins' tragically bad book, The God Delusion, quote, Imagine someone holding forth on biology whose only knowledge of the subject is the book of British birds, and you have a rough idea of what it feels like to read Richard Dawkins on theology. Card-carrying rationalists like Dawkins, who is the nearest thing to a professional atheist we have had since Bertrand Russell, are in one sense the least well-equipped to understand what they castigate since they don't believe there's anything there to be understood, or at least anything worth understanding. This is why they invariably come up with vulgar character caricatures of religious faith that would make a first-year theology student wince. The more they detest religion, the more ill-informed their criticisms of it tend to be. If they were asked to pass judgment on phenomenology or the geopolitics of South Asia, they would no doubt bone up on the question as assiduously as they could. When it comes to theology, however, any shoddy old travesty will pass muster. Does he imagine, like a bumpus young barrister, that you can defeat the opposition while being complacently ignorant of its toughest case? Dawkins, it appears, has sometimes been told by theologians that he sets up straw men only to bowl them over, a charge he rebuts in this book, but if the God delusion is anything to go by, they are absolutely right. End quote. So if anyone thinks that when the unthinking atheists or Matt Dillahunty say that uh, that that is an accurate summary of the argument are going to get anything but totally biased, misrepresentative, misleading, strawman characters of the actual argument, then you might be a fundamentalist yourself. By the way, there's a pretty funny uh, and, and accurate list on uh, Tectonics, the, the web blog Tectonics. You might be a fundamentalist atheist if... Which brings us to our first edition of You Might Be a Fundamentalist Atheist If. You might be a fundamentalist atheist if when you say, I don't know, you are being brave and honest. When a theist says, I don't know, they are being dishonest and trying to dodge the question. <laughs> okay, back to the straw man in progress. Uh, I think so, because it's very much a belief in magic at one point. I mean, magic being defined as the evocation of supernatural forces or entities to forecast or control natural events. Magic is defined as the invocation of supernatural forces or entities to forecast or control natural events. Okay, do a quick Google search. It's never defined that way. Merriam-Webster defines it as a power that allows people, such as witches and wizards, to do impossible things by saying special words or performing special actions. The Oxford English Dictionary quotes, uh, defines it as the power of apparently influencing the cause of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. 
The Macmillan Dictionary defines it as the mysterious power that some people believe can make impossible things happen if you do special actions or say special words called spells. The closest thing we get is in the Free Dictionary. It says the art that purports to control or forecast natural events, effects, or forces by invoking the supernatural. The second definition of which is uh, the practice of using charms, spells, or rituals to attempt to produce supernatural effects or control events in nature, the charms, spells, and rituals so used. What all these definitions make clear, and what Dillahunty is clearly trying to distort, is that magic is not just any and all supernatural explanations. It, it is not invoking the supernatural as an explanation for some event. He's trying to use magic here as a kind of pejorative because nobody wants to be thought of as appealing to magic. The problem is that magic is a human activity where a person tries to invoke supernatural beings through the use of charms or rituals to control human events. Now, one might be able to say things like prayer or healings are quote-unquote magic in that regard. Now, I'd take exception to it, but that's a completely different animal than saying that the cosmological argument is an appeal to magic. But he continues. And that's what these people are pleading for. So when they're talking about God and they're talking about in some degree, they're talking about the fates. They're talking about something that controls everything that falls or everything that, that you know, the wind blows. It's somehow in control of everything. When you lose your keys, it's somehow tied into all of the subsequent <laughs> events of your life so that whatever happens because you lost your keys suddenly becomes God's plan that you would lose your keys. And so he has without mechanism at all, he arranges that you lose these things and he arranges all of the other events to coordinate accordingly. I mean, besides this having absolutely nothing to do with the cosmological argument, <laughs> what does God's sovereignty in creation have to do with the question of why there is something rather than nothing, and what caused the finite contingent cosmos to spring into existence? Nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with it. I mean, that isn't even saying much for the kind of utter triviality of losing the keys example. Now, I hold to God's absolute sovereignty and that God foreordains everything that comes to pass. And yes, that does mean losing my keys, but that doesn't mean that there's purpose to me losing my keys as if I thank God for allowing me to use my keys to gain some blessing or whatever. But literally, none of this has a snowball's chance in hell of having anything to do with the cosmological argument. It's impossible to imagine what kind of logical leaps these people go into. I've never been able to think that way. I was never a believer in that sense. Logical leaps. No one makes those leaps to defend the cosmological argument. Here, he's just trying to deceive people to think, yeah, look how stupid they are for thinking God made them lose their keys. Wow, I guess the cosmological argument really is that bad if those people believe it's true. And most people aren't believers in that sense anyways. It, it certainly is never the kind of daily practice for most of the church throughout the history of the world. But can we actually start to address the cosmological argument here, please? I couldn't imagine how God could orchestrate every event of life because of the way that everything is networked together. It's not possible. So because of the complexity of the networking of life, 
it's not possible. Did you see that? Did, did you hear the claim? Because it's so complex, an all-knowing, all-powerful being couldn't do it. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to say that we should go around trying to find some grand purpose behind every lost key and under every hangnail, but to say that God cannot be sovereign because you can't imagine how he could do it. <laughs> but again, can we get back to the cosmological argument yet? In the first cause argument, is the first cause automatically assumed to be God by the apologist? No. No, and this is why the cosmological argument is, is a good tie into what we were talking about before. In, for example, the, the Kalam, which William Lane Craig and others use, everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. But this is often portrayed in a kind of a colloquial sense as something cannot come from nothing. And this ties right back into what Tracy was saying. It's not so much that they're necessarily claiming that they have found the something from which things can come from. It's that they haven't bothered to demonstrate their assertion that something cannot come from nothing. Okay, finally, to the cosmological argument. Well, at least he gets it right that it's not just an assumption of the uh, that the cause is God. But he appeals back to the flawed position that Tracy made, uh, which I dealt with in the last show. Here he says that the problem isn't that the argument assumes God. The problem for him is that the assumption that something cannot come from nothing. Matt, let me tell you a little bit about how logic works. For an argument to be a good argument, the premises need to just be plausibly true. That just means they just need to be more plausibly true than their negations. I know this might seem like hand-holding, but you don't seem to have a firm grasp on this. The premise that something cannot come from nothing, which is really just a version of the principle of sufficient reason used by philosophers for millennia, is just a basic first-order maxim of ontology. We have zero counterexamples to it. Zero. Not one. Zilch. Nothing. Nada. Zip. We don't have any examples of anything coming into existence without a cause. Atheists like to say that science has demonstrated the truth of naturalism. Hashtag science. Because thus far, so they say, no non-natural explanation has ever been shown to be true. I can almost guarantee that that is a statement that the unthinking atheist and Matt and Aaron Ra and Tracy and Ditchkins and co and all the other fundamentalist atheists would agree with. And yet here he won't equitably apply the same principle. Look, if naturalism can be concluded because thus far no contrary example has been demonstrated to be the case, and we have only been doing real experimental methodological science for the last, say, 300 years or so, then how much more should we accept a premise as plausibly true that is confirmed by 100% of all human experience throughout all of history that whenever some event happens or something comes into existence, it always universally, without question, unfailingly, unequivocally, always has a cause that brought it into existence. I remember last time when they said that the Christian presupposed God because they don't like evolution. Now, as flawed as that was, they're basically handing us the PSR, the principle of sufficient reason. The PSR is the fundamental assumption of 
science. Science can only operate in a world where there are causal explanations and where we should expect that if we look hard enough and long enough and in the right way and with the right methods, we can really come to find what the cause of some event was. We don't do science expecting to find that there's no explanation, that X just happens. You know what they say just happens, right? I mean, Matt tried to compare the cosmological argument to magic, but here, to deny the principle of sufficient reason is worse than magic. At least with magic, you have the magician and the hat and the rabbit, but on Matt's take here, you don't need any of that. Rabbits could just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing. That's magic. Just like when the presuppositionalists, it's not just that they're saying that their worldview offers an explanation for the logical absolutes. They are also saying that no other worldview can offer an explanation for the absolutes, and they don't demonstrate that or that it's even reasonable to have an explanation for these. Don't demonstrate it. We dealt with that last time. It's by the necessity of the explanation and based on the fact of the categorical impossibility of the contrary. Notice again that Matt doesn't attempt to give an alternate explanation. Now I'm not saying that because you cannot disprove X, therefore X is true. In this case, and in the case of presuppositionalism from the last episode, I'm saying we have every good reason based on good evidence and logic and argument for X with no contrary evidence against it, and we have good reason to believe that not X is categorically impossible. That is, it's logically incoherent. So unless you can present some version of not X that can be a plausible explanation, then simply saying, nuh-uh, isn't going to cut it. And the biggest problem that I have with people like size arguments, and even when they're not precepts, and we're just regular theists very often, when they confuse belief with knowledge, when being convinced means that they know something, just because they believe that they, you know, it's like, I can't remember the name of the evangelist now, but he did this long spiel where he says, I know that 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 I know there's a God. Apparently, we confuse belief with knowledge. Now, here he's about to open a huge can of worms that will be problematic if he keeps going down this line on so many levels. But the unthinking atheist, either knowingly or unknowingly, I lead towards unknowingly since I'm not sure he's that sharp, changes topics and shifts it away from that huge landmine that's about to be stepped on. Now, until they bring it up later, I'm not going to go running down the foxhole with a pinless hand grenade either, but I'm not even sure what his point would have been. Simply that belief doesn't entail knowledge? Okay, I agree, belief doesn't entail knowledge. But so what? Someone can have belief and knowledge. Now, here is where so many of the new atheists blunder and make belief to be synonymous with their absurd definition of faith as blind faith, which they think just is belief without evidence. So belief is synonymous with faith. Let's run a little syllogism here. A is B, B is C, therefore A is C. Okay, that's a classical hypothetical syllogism. Let's put in some variables. Belief is synonymous with faith. Faith is belief without evidence. Therefore, belief is belief without evidence. Do, do you see the problem there? Do you see the equivocation that takes place? Once you do it that way, it completely falls apart.
Plus, just because not all belief is a claim to knowledge, it doesn't follow that knowledge doesn't entail beliefs. In philosophy, the statement, I know that X, is the same thing as saying, I have warranted true belief that X. That is, not all mammals are dogs, but all dogs are mammals. Not all beliefs are knowledge claims, but all knowledge claims are beliefs. I have a belief in their propositional truth value, and I just happen to be right and have good warrant to know that I'm right. Now, my friend Wayne Hartnett uh, had a good breakdown of the problem on Facebook thread once, uh, especially for those who claim that atheism is merely the psychological state of lacking a belief which I can almost guarantee that all the commentators on this counter-apologetics show would agree with. Uh, Wayne asks, quote, Suppose that at some point in the future, God were to reveal himself to all humanity in a way that was completely undeniable and unambiguous. At that point, all of humanity would have certain knowledge of God's existence, and thus would not believe in God. Thus, all humans would be atheists and theists. Anyone see the problem with new atheist definitions? End quote. Well, look, I've done a ton on faith, and I, I did a whole episode, uh, just a couple episodes, on the, the, the new atheist strange definition of, of atheism as a lack of belief. Uh, and I've written blog posts on it and other episodes, so I'm not going to go into it here. But for now, let's just say that it's lucky that the unthinking atheists switch subjects. What is the difference between the cosmological and the Kalam cosmological argument? Anyone want to speak to that for us? Well, it was the original version of the cosmological argument was everything has a cause for its existence. No, no, it wasn't. That was never the cosmological argument. Now, the cosmological argument originated with Plato, who didn't even speak of causes, but movers. The Arabic and Jewish philosophers basically kept that tradition, and Aquinas picked it up with his five ways, and keeps the argument for motion, but then adds a couple other kinds of cosmological arguments, one of which Leibniz would later fine-tune to be the, co the contingency argument. But nowhere was the argument ever that everything must have a cause. Here, he's just lying to us. Not surprising, as we've seen from people who cannot be bothered to even uh, first understand the position that they're going to rail against. And the somewhat surprising thing is that no one corrects him. Ugh, once more under the breach. And that put them in the position when they finally got down to there is a God that exists. The natural response was, okay, what is the cause for God's existence? Because your first premise says that everything has a cause. Again, no, it wasn't. They consistently showed that the people who said, well, then what's the cause of God, were misunderstanding the first premise. We can read this all the way back from Plato through to the modern day where the so-called quote-unquote skeptics still, even when faced with the Klam, which expressly states that it's only dealing with things that begin to exist uh, that must have a cause, still say, well, if everything has a cause, then what caused God? A child's question is a child's question for a reason. We normally grow out of it. And so the Kalam version, the biggest change, as far as I'm aware, is that it begins with everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence so that they can exclude God by saying that God never began to exist and therefore does not have a cause for its existence. It's not, so we can exclude God. Interestingly enough, this was the same argument 
that steady state theorists use uh, when they used to say the universe didn't have to have a cause because it didn't need one uh, since it never began to exist. It is not formulated to exclude God. It's formulated because we don't need to speak of causes for beginningless entities, whether they be eternal universes or abstract objects or God. And they act as if we invented it to smuggle a God concept in. Long before the argument was a glimmer in Plato's eye, Jews believed that God never began to exist. We aren't committing the fallacy of post hoc where we change the data to fit the conclusion. It's just that God, if God exists, is not the kind of entity that begins to exist. And the way I used to argue about the Big Bang, for example, is if you imagine a Cartesian coordinate system where time is, is like an asymptote, the closer that you get to zero, the longer a second is so that it, you know, one second equals infinity when t equals zero. I mean, because you have time beginning at the moment of the Big Bang. So at that moment, with one second stretched to eternity, you have both a beginning and an eternal existence at the same time. Now, I can't argue this very well anymore because Lawrence Krauss says that I'm wrong about that. And at some point here in the near future, he promised that he's going to sit down with me and discuss it. And I hope to have video running for that because how often do you have a, an expert like this get to tell you how wrong you are? I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> what? Totally irrelevant. And here I would agree with Krauss on this. But again, it's just totally irrelevant. I mean, besides that appealing to Krauss on very much isn't going to be that helpful anyways, but seriously, so what? It's irrelevant to the Kalam. Nonetheless, in, in that argument, my whole universe, everything, you know, it was eternal, even though it began because of this asymptote. And so I have dodged that whole quandary. Yeah, you've dodged it by appealing to a patent contradiction. It's a contradiction to say that the universe began to exist in the finite past and an infinite amount of time ago. And this is what passes for reason with these people. Hey, Tracy, have you seen that video that's gone viral, that pastor with his ball cap on backwards, Josh Feuerstein? No, I saw people posting it, but I haven't looked at it. Has anyone on this call besides me seen the video? I was interviewed by BBC regarding that video. <laughs> For those who haven't seen it, welcome back to the planet. For the last few weeks, this video has been posted by every religious friend and associate that I know. And it's a guy, I guess he's driving in his car, he's got his cell video rolling, and he supposedly destroys evolution in three minutes. And it's directed right at atheists. I think the title of the video is, Hey, Atheist, I Destroy Evolution in Three Minutes. I wrote a blog about it. JT did a great, great blog, which was so much more in-depth than even my own. But Tracy, he pulled out the, uh, he called it the Lamborghini assembling itself, which is a variation of the 747 in a junkyard right, argument. It's watchmaker. And the guy also demonstrates, of course, that he, he doesn't know what evolution is, right? He goes into these, these long, what we call prats, points refuted a thousand times. And then uh, he demonstrates that he, okay, he doesn't know that evolution has ever been observed. He couldn't define what evolution is. He's, he's confusing um, cosmology and biology so that, again, he wants to put everything that is in the realm of science all on one side of the table. And all of the collective sciences together are one 
belief system juxtaposed to his own God-based belief system so that he can create a false dichotomy. And then whatever he doesn't understand, all he has to do is ridicule by the fact that he doesn't understand it. And then his own side prevails, even though he doesn't understand that either. Um, what in the world does any of this have to do with the Kalam? Th this is two times in the span of about 15 minutes, the first which we talked about in the last episode, where to quote-unquote refute a Christian argument, they appeal to complexity, uh, to, to, I'm sorry, to completely irrelevant stuff about evolution and science. What in the world does any of that have to do with the Kalam? Absolutely nothing. But look, if they can make a Christian look like they're the like they're only defending the Kalam because they're anti-science and anti-evolution and totally ignorant based on this one sham video that most of us have never seen, which I, uh, I'm pretty suspicious isn't even a Christian anyways, but an atheist mocking one, then they can keep the fundamentalists frothing at the mouth for more. I mean, it's just a completely ludicrous segment. He throws the word accident around quite a bit, and this is common when you're speaking to the faithful, and it's common when we listen to apologists. It's all accidental. It's all by chance. That's insane. You guys want to speak to this charge? Common when you talk to the faithful. Now, we're going to see how they respond in a second, yet uh, this is a major problem. <laughs> accidental as in unplanned. Are, are you really here saying that on naturalism, everything isn't accidental, that things don't happen by accident, but by design? I mean, that's just, honestly, that's just bizarre. Of course, on naturalism, everything is accidental. That is by chance, apart from intentionality or design. Do you do you want to claim otherwise? You'd be the first naturalist I know that says what happens in nature happens by design and intentionality. But let's hear their responses. You're you're going to love this. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just the same thing. It's like he's looking at nature, he's seeing this in nature, and he's just saying, I refuse to believe nature can do this, and I don't know why he's saying that. Apparently, I refuse to believe that nature can do this. Again, besides all of this still being supposedly a response somehow related to the Kalam, and besides all the arguments from fine-tuning and specified complexity and teleological function and laws of logic and morality and so on and so forth, for why theists think that there is a mind behind nature, notice that here she doesn't disagree that it's not by chance. If it's by nature and not by intentionality or design, then it's by chance accidents. Like, why would you be looking at something and saying it's not possible? As if nature doesn't have any predictive qualities, as if we can't see... Right. You know, I, why wouldn't nature be the foundational thing? Why wouldn't nature be the foundational thing? Uh, well, because nature is finite and contingent and doesn't have a mind or intentionality as a foundation for things like the laws of logic or, or specified complexity or fine-tuning or, or, or pretty much anything else uh, that... that we observe. I mean, I, I can predict what will come next, uh, what will be the next card dealt when I'm playing poker. The better I am at counting cards, the more predictive I can be. Just because nature has predictive elements to it has nothing to do with it not being by chance. Are you saying that because I can predict what card comes next, are you going to say that the card dealt wasn't by chance? By the way, notice here that nat the naturalism of the gaps. 
They're claiming to know what they don't know and can't know and just saying, then something natural occurs and only something natural can occur. As if that's an answer. She's just begging the question and they are all nodding along with her like she has just said something, I don't know, profound when it's just idiocy. But hey, hashtag science. Why would you stray from what you can see and demonstrate and say that is what is, here's what is, here's what we can demonstrate, here's what we can say we know is, let's look at that, let's examine that, let's see what's going on with that, but they want to take this step back to something you can't know is. Besides being totally vague and assuming that we can't know, it's just meaningless. It would be like saying we can't, we can totally understand Hamlet by just looking at the fibers of the paper and the ink composition and the color of its binding. I mean, it is that preposterous. That is the kind of reductionistic, scientistic naturalism of the gaps that she's seriously defending here with a straight face. Why resort to mind as explanations? Because sometimes mind is the best explanation for the features of reality that we can see and touch and hear and feel. Now, whether or not you think that that's true or false, at least have the integrity to come to a position where you first understand what your opponent is saying before you respond or you run the risk of fundamentalism like these commentators here who are so blinded by their bias that they cannot even properly present the views of the theists. I have a feeling I could offer Tracy a million dollars to explain the teleological argument, for example, as a theist would defend it, and she couldn't do it. She has so deluded herself to think that her comments really are relevant to what any Christian philosopher would argue for in these cases. And this is who tens of thousands of atheists are watching and listening to and getting their talking points from. The thing that bothers me about it is when, and, and I bring this up all the time, when people realize that their position is unsupported, but they say, I'm going to believe it anyway. So basically what you guys have just said thus far. When they say that, well, these may be what the facts are, but I'm going to believe this. I know. It's maddening, right? You guys should really stop doing it. I don't understand how they can, to some degree, realize on some level that what they believe is not likely, probably, or evidently true, but they want to believe that anyone. I can't imagine. Why would somebody want to do that? Why would someone not want to understand what is really true and have no means of determining what is really true. I mean, you can discuss with these people how to identify, how can we tell if your idea is more accurate than mine? What would be the hypothesis in either case? And you can't get them to think like that because they don't want to. Preach it, brother. This is exactly the problem with your episode so far. Uh, you don't want to think rationally. You don't want to allow for the theist to ever be right about anything. You don't want to admit that not all theists are deluded and irrational and anti-science and so on. You don't want that. And so you insist against all argument and evidence and reason that the theistic arguments or beliefs just are these grotesque straw men misrepresentations. It's maddening to them to have to tell Christian fundamentalists that's not what evolution is. No, it's not that we evolved from monkeys. No, it's not unguided. No, it doesn't entail Nazi eugenics, and so on. But they just won't listen when Christians frequently and consistently tell them no. 
that's not what the arguments are. No, that's not what faith is. No, it has nothing to do with evolution, and so on. They don't want to even possibly be true, and so they refuse to do anything but dishonestly misrepresent it and underhandedly engage with it. Remember, this is all in the context, supposedly, of responding to the Kalam cosmological argument. Do you ever just look up and, and, and say, how in the world did we get here? It's kind of a defense mechanism of religious beliefs. And I, and I know that Arnes talked about this, you know, on the Unholy Trinity Tour. And I think of the many times he points out that these organizations often say that any, any supposed evidence that contradicts their religious worldview or the Bible should be rejected. I think he should probably add the size rejection of the sociologist studies on the Paraha and other things like that in there. But what bugs me, I think, the most about all of this, and we could continue listing arguments ad nauseum, is that most of the time when believers are presenting these arguments, I want to ask them if these are the arguments that convince them. Yeah, that's the genetic fallacy. Is this why they are a believer? Because I don't think that in most cases, I don't think that anybody has ever become a believer because of tag or presuppositional arguments. I think that instead, these are what they are convinced will be compelling to other people. And that's a continued genetic fallacy sustained through that segment. And I know people who came to believe based on arguments like this. I myself have made no qualms about the role of arguments like the moral argument and the ontological argument in leading me to a belief in God. But again, it's totally irrelevant. It has nothing to do with whether or not the arguments are true or false or valid or invalid. I think that instead, these are what they are convinced will be compelling to other people instead of the reasons that they believe, which is kind of an admission that they don't have good reasons. <laughs> no, it's not. How is that an admission that we don't have good reasons? This is just, I mean, uh, okay, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little heated, but this is just gross dishonesty on a scale we haven't seen yet. Even if he's right that no one comes to belief based on arguments, which is just flat out false, that has nothing to do with whether or not there are good reasons for belief in God. Alvin Plantinga's work on properly basic beliefs comes to mind, as does William uh, Lane Craig's work on the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. But besides that, it's completely irrelevant. Imagine that I came to believe in evolution because I saw it in a dream. Undoubtedly, they would think that that was a bad reason to come to that belief. But after I came to believe that evolution was true, I started researching and found all of the evidence and arguments and discoveries that are out there, and now found that I really did have a stronger warrant and foundation for my belief that evolution was true. And I then started using those new found evidence and arguments to show that evolution is true to my friends. Would the fact that those were not the arguments or evidence that won me to my beliefs mean that I was admitting that I have no good reason for my beliefs? No. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense that these people are peddling here. Again, I keep thinking to myself, this is what passes for reason to the so-called quote-unquote skeptics. This is just... This is just madness. This is what the best and brightest of the new atheist fundamentalist movement has to offer. These are the, the people that so-called skeptics are looking to for their talking points. 
I mean, I mean, part of me wants to sit back and just let them keep talking because if I give them enough rope, they just continue to hang themselves. Well, the best reason that people give me for why they became, you know, a devout Christian was they used to be sinners or they used to be meth addicts or something like that. And that's really the best explanation people give me. That's the best explanation for you because it makes your life a lot easier in trying to argue against it. Confirmation bias, anyone? I've had people tell me that they believe because they have to believe. Not once have I ever heard that. Literally, not once. That sounds very fishy, like something he probably hears from atheists who used to be Christians, who are now atheist fundamentalists who are mocking religion. And as I pointed out, if that really was the kind of Christianity that they believed in, well, I'd probably leave it also. Just don't pretend that that's what Christianity is, or religious belief is, or faith is. When I was a believer, I was terrified at the idea that there might not be a God. When I was finally sort of crawling out of the cocoon, I, I thought it's, it was unfathomable to me. It wasn't a world I ever saw myself living in. It's like, it's like being airdropped in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, and you feel like you're in danger all the time. I mean, it's a scary thing. Change scary anyway, but usurping your whole worldview in favor of a life without an afterlife, without an all-controlling father who's sort of puppeteering the whole thing, it's terrifying for a lot of people. I can totally understand it. Can you? Can you totally understand it? Probably because you're psychologizing to make your position sound better. I mean, easy to view all those Christians as just living a life of fear and dread and, and, and look, come to the light. Come over here to the atheist side where there's no fear and only joy and green pastures of brilliance and hashtag science. I could understand discovering some reality that you wish wasn't true. I've experienced that. But I always come to cope with it. I mean, if you discover something that, you know, you discover you're adopted, for example, or something, you know, something along those lines. Okay, you just, you just deal with that. I don't understand lying to yourself and pretending that those are still your parents to, to the biological degree, you know, or whatever else the analogy is. I remember finding out that, you know, like old, uh, uh, what is it, urban legends, you know, I, I mean, there were some old urban legends that I thought were really cool. And then when I found out that they weren't true at all. I was disappointed by that. It's not like I keep repeating them and keep telling the people that these are true even when I know that they're not. What in the world does any of that have to do with anything? Remember, dear listeners, remember, this is a show on counter-apologetics. Just remember that. They're supposed to be dealing with the arguments of apologetics. Keep that in mind. Well, Matt, you went down this road. Did you have that moment of, oh, shit, you know, when you were starting to, to have that moment of epiphany when the cloud was beginning to lift? Did you start to grasp on even tighter, or what was your reaction? You know, I really didn't. I think, you know, I've said many times that I was a skeptic first, and I was skeptical about a lot of things. I just hadn't been skeptical about my religious beliefs. And so I was in this mode of trying to prove and find ways of proving that my beliefs were correct to people who didn't share them. And I valued critical thinking and skepticism. I had just been convinced for so many years that what I believed was true. I mean, I, I don't even know why it didn't occur to me to question it, other than this is kind of what's drilled into you, and you're surrounded by people who believe. 
Here I would simply ask him if, since becoming an atheist, he has come to have other reasons for why he doesn't believe. And if he argues differently now uh, that he did when he was first became an atheist, if that's like admitting there's no good reason for his atheism. And so when I started finding flaws, I was honest enough to just recognize the flaws and accept them and follow the evidence wherever it led, rather than trying to claim that the evidence itself must be wrong. And the rest of us, by the way, we're all dishonest. Did you, did you catch that? Did you see what he did there? He was honest, unlike the rest of us who just claim the evidence might be wrong and are all dishonest. Here, what, what I find so interesting is, is that I wonder what evidence he has in mind. I mean, he's super vague, but remember, these are the people who say that atheism is a lack of belief and that there's no burden of proof on atheism. They say they can't disprove God, but that God is yet unproven. Yet here, Matt seems to be saying, no, there, there's evidence that disprove God or at least makes God very unlikely. Well, what is that evidence? And remember, from the last episode, if he wants to appeal to the laws of logic to evaluate any of the evidence to draw conclusions, to draw inferences, he has yet to justify the laws of logic or the rules of inference on his worldview and is therefore working on Christian presuppositions. He's sitting on God's lap to slap God's face. Now this is the same thing that I would have to say about my wife. The only reason that she changed her mind in the course of our discussions about evolution when I was explaining to her that evolution was true when she was still a creationist and she accepted that was because she was a sincere believer. She held it to her belief, not on faith, but because she legitimately thought it really was true because of her upbringing or because of the misinformation that was given to her or whatever. She wasn't being willfully dishonest in that. And so her and Matt would both be outside the category of believers that I was talking about a moment ago. So just in case you didn't know, uh, there's an in-group and there's an out-group of believers, apparently. There's the honest and sincere ones that, when presented with evidence, won't deign to be skeptical, but will uh, instantly see the light, hear Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens sing the Hallelujah Chorus, and bend the knee to hashtag science. Again, Notice that they are here throwing in evolution again, as if to accept evolution is to accept atheism, or that to be a faithful theist is to deny evolution based on indoctrination and upbringing. Did you, I mean, did you, did you catch that conflation? Uh, that, that to be a, a, an honest person, once faced with evidence, you hold to evolution, and therefore you're no longer a theist. Remember, also, that we're still in the segment that's supposed to be dealing with the Kalam. Do you remember that way back when, before this train wreck uh, ha has started happening? This is all set in that context. All of these genetic fallacies and psychologizing and conflating theism with anti-evolution and so forth is all somehow supposed to be a response to the Kalam cosmological argument about the cause for the beginning of the universe in the finite past. Remember, that's, that's where this is all responding to. Tracy Harris, you got a background in the faith somewhere? What's your story? Yeah, I, uh, I have to agree with um, Aaron. When I was confronted by reality or by facts that I couldn't, you know, that disputed what I believed, I, of course I changed my beliefs. When she was confronted with reality, 
notice the total question begging nature. I mean, would she let me get away with saying that when I was confronted with the reality of God, of course I changed my beliefs. I mean, I almost look forward to it when Tracy chimes in because it's like deadpan serious comic relief. If, if it weren't so tragic, it would be humorous just how nonsensical statements throughout this entire series are. So I've seen people that don't do that, and I don't understand that either. Look, I'm not saying that all Christians are paragons of rationality. Uh, I mean, I'm just as irked by people like Ken Ham and Ray Comfort as probably these guys are. But Tracy, come on. I mean, you, you don't understand that? You, you don't understand? Use your words, Tracy. Use your words. But when it comes to why people believe so strongly, I think a lot of people forget how they were indoctrinated. Not everybody's indoctrinated the same way and not everybody's indoctrinated successfully. But I remember how I was indoctrinated and it took me years of being out of it to finally sort of wrap my brain around, oh, you know what? Now I really remember what happened to me. And boom goes the dynamite. There it is. Uh, it didn't take long to get there, but here we are indoctrination. People don't come to the side of hashtag science only because they're indoctrinated. Uh, I've talked to some people who were raised in the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War, in the Soviet Union, in Albania, in Cuba, in North Korea. To call what happens in a regular church, by the way, indoctrination is just such... Now, I'm trying to avoid the word stupid, but it's just such biased and inflammatory rhetoric that it's hard to take anyone seriously who uses that way. Plus again, Tracy, I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if you don't know this, uh, you might want to look into it, but not all of us were raised in the church. I, for example, am adult convert who grew up thoroughly secular. I don't even remember having a single Christian friend in any of my primary or high school days. But even if I were raised Christian, even if she's right, and, and uh, everyone only believes because they were indoctrinated. What does any of this have to do with the truth or falsity of the proposition that God exists or the Kalam cosmological argument? I mean, it's just genetic fallacy layered on genetic fallacy, layered on genetic fallacy, layered on non sequitur, throw in a dash of uh, psychologizing, and you have this, this Molotov cocktail of atheistic fundamentalism. Hashtag science. Because I had a rosy colored view of it as a Christian. Um, but they would take me when I was little, you know, like before you're, like when you're a baby, you're going to church and you're in like the little daycare at the church. So you're going to church, you know, three times a week before you're even old enough to walk or talk. And then when you start to get a little bit older, they start putting you in Bible class and you have your teacher that's there on Sundays and Wednesday nights, and then you have the preacher that's up there in the pulpit, like on, you know, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, and then your parents are at home teaching you this and probably hitting you, like trying to get you to be submissive and obedient. And probably hitting you. I mean, don't you know that all Christians beat the faith into their children during indoctrination? I mean, I mean, that that's normal, right? That That's, yeah, that's the line of argument that she's going with. Probably hitting you. And to view the world that way in black and white, it's bad, smack, you know, and, and it's good, so you're going to do it. It's bad, smack. I mean, <laughs> I keep saying this, but if, if this is what passes for rationality for these people, uh, 
Okay. What does any of this have to do with the truth of any religious proposition, let alone the Kalam cosmological argument? Remember, again, this is is supposed to be counter-apologetics dealing with arguments put forward by apologetics. This is counter-apologetics like propaganda is counter-free speech. And so you have all this going on and all of these early, before you even get into school, like adults and the whole culture and your parents and all these people that you consider to be teachers and so smart and they're talking to all these people, surely they know things. So you're so impressed with that as a little child. And of course, when you get into school, it's kind of like what you were already introduced to at the church. And so you've got these teachers that you're supposed to listen to and learn from, and they're just like the teachers at church that you listen to and you learn from. So you've got this setup that is just totally reinforced. Let's imagine that we lived in a thoroughly secular society where parents raised their children to believe completely secular values, whatever that even means. They all had secular teachers, which is pretty close to public education. What part of what she just said wouldn't apply to any system of education ever? I mean... She, she also seems to think that all Christian children grow up, by the way, in this oppressive indoctrinating homes and churches and go to indoctrinating schools and are told to never ask questions or they'll be beaten. I mean, this is just so bizarre. I mean, it's, it, it's just so it, it just it, it borders on just blatant bigotry. I mean, she might as well say we all have big noses and strange hairstyles. It's like she thinks that parents who aren't religious have no value-laden parenting method methods, or that teachers impart no values or beliefs uh, or methods of reasoning in their children, or that children don't look up to their parents or their teachers to get their cues on what they should believe and think. It, it's I mean, it's like she just thinks that this only happens when religious parents do it, and it's bad. By the way, Dawkins thinks it's worse than molestation. But when secular parents do it, well, it's it's reasonable, and, and, it's, and it's educational, and it's rational. I mean, if you don't see the sheer hollow rhetoric of all this, I mean, I just don't, I honestly don't know what to tell you at this point. And of course, when you start to hit an age where you start thinking about these things that you're being told and you start realizing, hey, they want me to walk down the aisle and go and get baptized and now I have to really kind of think about this and it's not just believe it anymore. I'm starting to get to be an adolescent. I'm starting to get to be a teen and I'm starting to consider these ideas in a less childlike way. By the way, anyone who knows the first thing about human development knows the cognitive shift that takes place just in the tweenish years, you know, the 11 to 13 year old time frame. Uh, and it's the same, believe it or not, whether or not the child is a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a secular atheist. They actually hit a stage in development where they, for the first time, have the cognitive structures and capabilities to think critically and evaluate ideas. This has nothing to do with religion. This is just basic human development. And it's why, by the way, most churches don't start any kind of catechesis or anything until the child is old enough to understand what they believe, articulate it, and either accept or reject it. Because churches don't want kids to falsely say they believe what they don't believe. 
Ironically, the very fact that most churches historically have made this transition a pivotal time in the life of a child is totally counter to Tracy's point here. If it was all indoctrination and totalitarian oppression like she thinks it is, churches wouldn't foster this time of questioning and deep thinking. They would oppress it. They would till the soil so that you don't learn to question. You don't learn to think articulately. You don't have a decision point. No, it would be your parents and the church imposing it on you. It would be North Korea. You wouldn't get to think and question and come to your own decision. The fact that you have these decision points normally as a fundamental time in churches just mitigates against even her sociological statements here. But at that point, you don't have any world experience. You don't have very much critical thinking going for you. You haven't certainly been raised to think critically. And you have this doctrine of hell that you've always heard. And there's all these horrible songs about what's going to happen to you if you don't believe in Jesus and, you know, all the good stuff that's going to happen if you do. And you're telling these children, if you don't get baptized, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to never be with your parents again. You'll never see them again. They're going to go to heaven. You're going to go to hell. It's a bad place. And you're going to make God unhappy. And Jesus died for you. And you're so ungrateful. And you're just, you know, sinful, horrible thing. You don't know how to think or make decisions, you're immoral, you you can't trust yourself, can't trust your own judgment. This is what you've been told. Everything that a child should never be told. You know, children should be taught to learn how to think and to progressively learn to trust themselves and to trust their judgment. And when you're indoctrinated, you're just progressively torn down to never trust yourself and to think that you can't think and you can't question and, and that you're just not smart enough and you're not even good enough. And so these children, like me, you end up just praying and praying desperately because you want so badly to be able to believe because not believing results in one of two things. Either you're going to end up in hell or you're going to live your whole life afraid that you're going to end up in hell. And it's like that it gets better campaign for the gay kids in school. When you're a young person like this and you've been indoctrinated in this way, you don't understand that there is a way to not believe and not live in fear. So you're thinking my entire life will be horrible fear and doubt just like I'm experiencing right now if I don't believe. And so you're just on your knees every night just begging and begging for, you know, please, God, if you're there, help me, you know, show me something, give me something to hang my hat on. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'm sure I'll say it again in the future. The only people who raise their children with this kind of fear are the fundamentalists. I don't know anyone and I mean anyone who says, you better believe or you won't ever see your parents again. I mean, this is the kind of religion that they were raised. So is it really surprising that they swung from one fundamentalism to another? And the cool thing about the prayer test is that there's no success metric, right? It's whatever you consider to be a successful outcome is the positive successful outcome of the prayer test. So you get your little sign that is whatever the hell is meaningful to you in your subjective head, and there it is. God God showed you he's there. Okay, now that you're maybe done with your soapbox rant, can can we maybe get back to the Kalam argument? No? No? I mean, is it just me that thinks that discussions should remain, I don't know, reasonable and rational and not run full sprint into bigotry and genetic fallacies and psychologizing? 
And then, amazingly, all that fear and all that crap just slides away because now you believe in Jesus, you're going to run and get baptized, and isn't it great because now I don't have to be afraid anymore, and now I don't have to be stressed anymore, and now my life can be happy, God's happy with me, I'm so happy I know there's a God, and I'm so relieved, like just the relief, and, and now I know how much God loves me, and he was there for me, and he helped me, and then you start doing this thing that Aaron was talking about earlier where every single thing that happens, it's God. God did this for me. God made sure to, you know, not let me get this because it wasn't right for me. And then I went and got this other thing and it was so much better. And so your whole life is then filtered through this cosmology of God behind everything. And then you go through that for the remaining years, unless somebody comes along and challenges it sufficiently. And that's huge. Nope. Nope. Guess we can't, guess we can't get back to the qualm. Uh, so basically, unless you weren't raised in a fundamentalist church, See, this is the problem. She thinks that the entire tirade describes just what Christianity is. To Tracy, you see, what she said just is what Christianity is. That's it. You're indoctrinated. You're afraid. Then you make people happy, and you try to believe, uh, and then it's this kind of pagan, Pelagian, moralistic legalism with God behind everything, like a guardian angel, mega manufacturer, helping me find my keys until you might be lucky enough to have someone stumble into your life and awaken you from your dogmatic slumber. And don't forget anti-evolutionary slumber. Hashtag science. That is what she honestly thinks Christianity is. That's it. That's Christianity to her. No wonder she can't even articulate anything but the most contorted and grotesque caricatures of Christian arguments because of that's honestly what she thinks Christianity is. I mean, it's huge because what they're challenging is not just an entire universe that you see as God, but they're also coming at you trying to take away your security blanket, the thing that made you feel good and not be afraid anymore. And that, to me, is the thing. It's, people call it like the fear of hell, but I think it's more of a fear of going back to being uncertain and afraid. And when you haven't been in a place where you don't believe and you're not afraid, you don't even know that that place exists. Thank you, psychologist Tracy, for telling me that the problem is that we're afraid of being uncertain. <laughs> Here's that psychologizing again. We only believe in God as a security blanket because we want certainty and that there's purpose and that we're just afraid that it's just nature, which is, by the way, fundamental. Oh, and we're afraid of hearting evolu evolution too much. <laughs> Here again, uh, she's going to get cut off by the unthinking atheist uh, when he rescues Tracy by switching gears to Pascal's wager. But, I don't know, maybe he could have done that like four minutes ago before she showed her fundamentalist stripes. I don't know, maybe maybe throw, throw her a bone there, unthinking atheist. But hey, thanks for allowing us to suffer through that. And so next week, we're going to pick up with a psychologizing, I mean, I mean I'm sorry, uh, counter-apologetics and their treatment of Pascal's wager. Well, thanks again for joining us here on the Free Thinker Podcast. If you'd like to uh, get in on the action and contact the show or have your feedback read on the air, you can join me on Facebook at the Freed Thinker Podcast. Find me on the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us and have a great rest of your week.